Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the UC Architects, the world's most popular exchange, Office 365 and Skype for Business podcast. Today's episode was recorded on the 28th of August, 2016, and I'm your lovely host, Pat Richard. Today I'm joined uh, by a former colleague and uh, UC Architect, uh, Tom Arbuthnot, and a special guest who finally decided to show up after years of being invited. Uh, Ken Lasco. So, Ken, welcome. Tell us what you do for a living. Well, I work for Event Zero. I am the head of SD Delivery, and I guess that means I'm kind of your boss, which is uh, kind of hilarious. <laughs> I, and scoffed awesome. I scoffed at that. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, do as you're told. <laughs> cool. Uh, and I have to uh, go ahead and ask you to come in on Saturday. Uh, yeah, when does that ever work for you? Um, <laughs> So tell us, uh, what is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Ken Lasko, L-A-S-K-O. And you can also find my blog at uh, ucken.blogspot.com. And also, and uh, of course, I am the owner and operator and creator of the Link Optimizer, or SkypeOptimizer.com. Purveyor of uh, purveyor. fine information. And we'll, t- we'll talk about the optimizer here in a few minutes. Uh, but first up, let's get into our top stories. One thing that um, not completely UC-related, but uh, kind of an ancillary thing, is Microsoft finally open-sourced PowerShell. And uh, you know, for you PowerShell people, that's huge, I think. Um, one, because it's, uh, it's such a powerful tool. But two, because it's Microsoft, and Microsoft open-sourced something, uh, as well as they made it available on Linux. So both of you guys uh, play around with PowerShell stuff. What do you think the open source aspect of it is? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Like it's a complete turnaround from where Microsoft used to be. You know, Linux was the enemy, open source was the enemy, and it's it's all part of Microsoft being, I think, being committed to this cloud transformation and cloud workflow. You know, they want people running Linux in Azure. If you're going to automate things in Azure, um, then PowerShell is a great way to do it. So having PowerShell in Linux makes sense for Microsoft. Uh, and the, the, you know, the fact they're prepared to open source their code to make that kind of stuff happen is really, really interesting, I think. Do you think that uh, Steve Ballmer is just, like, you know, spitting right now? Uh <laughs> No, I don't think I don't know. I think he's he's got enough money and he's uh, he's got his basketball <laughs> and stuff. I don't think he's too worried to be honest anymore. But um, if he were dead, he'd be spinning in his grave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's very it's a very different Microsoft, isn't it? Like you know, everybody says that it's kind of cliche, but this really is you know a different world. It's like let's give a bunch of cool tooling to the to the other team just to make people run stuff in our cloud is is interesting. Well, I, It'll be I, interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, so it'd be interesting to see how well it's received in the Linux community. Um, I saw um, there was some Twitter about one of the Linux cons, and uh, uh, Linus uh, was on the PowerShell stand briefly talking to them and stuff. So um, clearly, you know, they're obviously aware of what's going on. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see which is the first distro that has PowerShell kind of in the box. Right. Right. And I think that. You know, Microsoft or uh, PowerShell is so embedded in in everything Microsoft these days. It's every in every server platform. It's in uh, um, Office 365, Azure. It's in um, all your desktop OSs, um, all your server applications, Skype for Business. Of course, it got its big start in Exchange. Um, I think Microsoft got to the point that they said we we can't go any further until 
we go outside of Microsoft. You know, we, we, yeah. we've already got it in, in basically every product that we have. If we want, you know, these organizations that are not just Microsoft to be able to endorse or uh, embrace it and utilize it uh, for, for what it was designed for, then, then we have to at least open it up to, you know, Linux or and whatever the case, you know, uh, maybe uh, eventually Mac. But um, open source, I think, is huge. And I think we're going to start to see all kinds of cool stuff show up in the community uh, because it's open sourced. Yeah, you remember a while ago they talked about um, SQL Server running on Linux as well, and that was another weird one at the time. It's like, well, why would you want SQL to run on Linux? But, you know, some some enterprises mandate that Linux is their platform for whatever reason, and they still want to use SQL. And, and now you can see the PowerShell thing now starts to make even more sense. If Microsoft are going to start putting workloads like SQL and Linux, again, having the common PowerShell toolset is going to make sense. Right, right, absolutely. Um, all right, let's talk uh, Office 365. So, uh, Tom, you and I were just talking about this a minute ago before we started. Uh, the roadmap for Skype for Business Online. What uh, what's new with this fast track? Yeah, so this is um, so this has been around for a little while. We thought it'd be worth talking about again. Microsoft again, new Microsoft thing. They're publicly publishing what they're doing for Office 365 on this roadmap site. Um, it's fasttrack.microsoft.com/roadmap. And then you can filter it by particular workloads as well. So if you filter it by Skype, you can just see the Skype stuff. And they break it into launched, uh, rolling out in development, and even cancelled. So if they can stuff, they do publicly acknowledge it. Um, it's worth keeping an eye on it, particularly the in-development stuff, to see what's coming next for, for in our case, for, for Skype, but for all the other workloads in Office 365 as well. Okay, okay, good. It's always nice to get some idea of where things are headed um you know we've we've definitely like you mentioned some stuff does get canceled for whatever reason and um but it is nice to be able to see what's going on and maybe start to make some plans uh, as an organization um, yeah and, and this is sort of semi-authoritative so in this you know agile world you have lots of microsoft meetings where they'll say this is coming soon or that's coming soon and you know they're more or less informed depending on who they are this, you can point to this website and say well at least if it's up on this website it genuinely is a thing and is being planned for um, it's, it's a little bit behind the times just looking at now there's a few things that have dropped that are still on the in development phase so there's a bit more updating for Microsoft to do there but it's uh, particularly if you're involved in Office 365 and kind of the ever changing workload it's worth keeping one eye on this site right good well, let's hope they keep it updated and uh I keep checking back on it. Um, next up, Veeam backup for Office 365. So this was kind of interesting. I was reading about this. Uh, Veeam has has launched their uh, availability availability suite uh, 9.5 um, sometime in this quarter. So uh, look for it any time now. But basically, the ability to uh, backup stuff in public clouds, private clouds. Uh, managed clouds, um, Office 365, everything. So looks like they're really stepping up to fill kind of a void of being able to have a, uh, a single vendor to go to for all of your uh, backup tools. So looks good. Uh, next up, Microsoft makes yet another acquisition, this time Genie, uh, to accelerate intelligent experiences in Office 365. So from what I've seen from, from looking through the information is uh, basically uh, an automated assistant that helps 
do things like schedule meetings, large scale meetings, and things like that. Uh, Tom, what do you think? Yeah, it, it sounds like it's going to be the kind of stuff that they'll roll into um, the Cortana type scenario. So, so the uh, blog post on Genie talks about find me the best time to meet Pat, uh, the best time for us to grab coffee, that kind of thing. And it, it understands that you want you know 15 minutes that you both overlap during the workday and tries to find you the find you the time. So I'm not sure if it's a technology uh, acquisition or a team acquisition as in kind of talent, but it looks like it's a a bit of both, and hopefully we'll see that bundled into the uh, Cortana experience. Okay, okay, that could be interesting. I know we're you know we're a perfect example. Um, you know the UC architects we've we've got you know ten people in ten different time zones, and uh, trying to get everybody together is sometimes problematic. So um, great um, migration of uh, traditional distribution groups to Office three sixty five groups. So uh, another step in the inevitable migration to the cloud. Um, if you have uh, exchange distribution groups. Um, the product group on the ELO blog has come up with an article that uh, talks through different methods of migrating from your traditional uh, on-prem distribution groups to uh, groups within Office 365. So if you're in a hybrid scenario, um, how to kind of take advantage of, of those Office 365 features. Uh, last uh, Office 365 topic is uh, Microsoft's new Service Assurance Dashboard. So now there's a, a dashboard about how Office 365 implements things like security, privacy, uh, compliance, um, supposedly a way to do some third-party reporting, um, such as uh, audit reports, um, and a little bit better insight into uh, Office 365 services. So check that out. We'll get a link to that on the uh, summary page for this article. All right, now to the fun stuff, uh, the Ooh. Skype stuff. So uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, and as you've heard him pipe in uh, every once in a while, our guest is Ken Lasko today. And um, a lot of people uh, use your optimizer, probably uh, recognize the name, but Ken... Talk about dialing rules as a general. What are they and where do they come into play here? Well, dialing rules, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that come into play when you're d developing a Skype for Business enterprise voice deployment. First, you've got to determine how people are going to dial numbers because people have got their ways that they want to dial numbers. Like internally, they might want to dial just like four-digit extensions externally they're used to dialing a zero or zero one one or something like that to get to, to uh, dial nationally internationally things like that so you got to consider all those sort of aspects and you gotta and it, gets rules more, to, it gets more complicated because people in the u.s might have one kind of method of doing something and people you know in, in the uk might exactly. have a different method you know even though yeah, those people exactly. are wrong but. so in a multinational company it can be very difficult or time consuming to just just to figure out, okay, well, I'm in the U.S., so how does someone in the U.K. dial phones? How does someone in Brazil dial phones? How does someone in North Korea dial phones? Like, so it's it's a lot of work, a lot of trial and error, and it's very time consuming. So that's just figuring out how to actually get the dial, like the the dial wheels for normalization is what it's called, just so people can dial their numbers and everything gets formatted to a common standard, which we like to call the E164 standard. 
so that's that's the first thing you got to worry about. And the second thing is routing and call authorization, and that's all rolled up into voice policies. So in some companies, you just don't really care. You want just want to say, okay, everybody can dial everything. That's fine. But in other companies, you might want to say, okay, well, common area phones, we we'll want to make sure they're only allowed to dial locally. Help desk can only dial nationally. They're not allowed to dial mobile numbers, that sort of thing. Executives can call internationally and can dial premium numbers and all that sort of stuff. And then you got to figure out how you're going to route all those sort of things. And, and you want to deal with least cost routing location-based routing, all these sort of things. takes It's a lot of work to get this stuff up and going. Okay. And so you've got the, the cool tool and um, skypeoptimizer.com. And kind of tell us what, what's required from the end user. What do, what do they have to plug in? Yeah, so depending on the country that you're creating dial rules for, it'll ask you different questions. They'll ask you uh, if you want it, if you're in North America, it asks you how do you want to handle dialing Caribbean countries, which are in North America. There, you dial one plus the area code, just like anywhere else. But the cost for dialing Caribbean companies is extremely high compared to dialing U.S. or Canada. Uh, in other countries, you it might ask you. Uh, if you want to use extensions, you want to block premium numbers, you want to use call park, you want to allow caller ID block, and all these sorts of things. So there's lots of, lots of little questions to ask. You plug in the information you want, you hit generate rules, and then it will generate. It, it'll go off for a few seconds. It'll consult my massive database of dialing rule information for every single country in the world, almost every single country in the world, um, and then it will generate a PowerShell script, which you can then take and apply against your, your Skype for Business server, and then it will create all the dial rules, the, the voice policies, trunk translation rules, everything that you need to get going in Skype for Business So for in, in an enterprise voice. So in most companies, you could just generate this. You run the PowerShell script. It'll ask you some more questions, like what's what link server you want to apply it to, what mediation pool, do you want to use uh, least cost routing and that sort of stuff? And then it'll go away. It'll create everything, and and you're done. And like uh, that's literally it. You can be done your dialing rules in literally five minutes. And so just just for clarification, so let's say I am a U.S. based Skype administrator, and I want to set up dialing rules for the U.K. Actually, for various European countries. Uh, yeah. you, run, you run it once for each country? Yep, you would run it once for each country, and then depending on how you're set up. So, like, I actually blogged about this recently because one of the more common deployments that we're seeing nowadays is that you have a centralized link server with a centralized uh, SIP trunk where which will terminate phone numbers from various countries. Like, you could have five, six, or a dozen different countries all terminating, terminating into this single SIP trunk. So what we can do with the link optimizer, Skype or the Skype optimizer, is you run this for every country where you have a presence, where there's people, and it will create uh, dial plans, voice policies specific to those countries. So, for instance, even if your SIP trunk is in the U.S. and it's servicing U.K. numbers, it will create a dial plan for U.K. users so they can dial zero for national calls. They can dial just the seven or eight-digit local number if they're in the same, in within the same area code or, or city code. 
zero zero for international things like that, and it will also set up the same policy so you can say, yeah, I only want to allow Tom the ability to make local calls because we see that he's always making these international calls. We don't want him to do that anymore, and you can do that same thing across all your all your countries. Okay. Okay, great. And this is a free tool. It is a free tool. It is runs on donations, is what it runs on. So I've been extremely um, kind of always hoping that people were going to donate. It doesn't have. It was your retirement plan. It has. Yeah, I was hoping it was going to be my retirement plan. It has not turned out to be that. It's it's at least enough to cover my my hosting costs and things like that. Uh, But. You know, it's it's a labor of love more than anything else. I was kind of hoping to get rich off of it, but that just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and if you yeah. if you think about it, I mean, you you know, you hit it right on the head. I mean, it could take many hours and trial and error and research and everything to look up all the different settings that you'd have to set up to allow you know people in the UK to dial, um, and you know, like you said, you can be all done with your your optimized rules and policies and everything in five or ten minutes. Um, yeah. You think about how much time that's saving you, and and time is money. I mean, you've got you've been working on this. I know for for many years. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's a labor of love, uh, and I can certainly understand. Um, you know, throw a few bones through uh, PayPal or whatever uh, uh, to Ken. Yeah. You know, help him help him cover the bill so his wife's not nagging at him. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's totally worth checking out. Like I, I know um, quite a few of the consultants in Medali have used it at one time or another. And if if you're not full time on Skype for Business, it's all the better. Like if you're doing Skype for Business and you're an internal on an internal company team, you, you can you know use Ken stuff and know that you've got got stuff covered and not have to research all the weird dial rules for all the weird countries you're deploying There's- into. Even- even if you just use it as kind of a, a double check that you've got it all lined up, it's worth taking a look. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I've also taken a lot of time and, and done just little teeny little tweaks. It just makes people's experiences a little bit better. Like just the addition of, of uh, backslash D, which is in the star and then the right spot in the dialing rule. And if you're a regex expert, you'll know backslash D star would mean that one or more digits um, and you put that in the right place, and it, and it can actually enhance the user's dialing experience to make things easier for them. So, so I've incorporated all this kind of knowledge gleaned over years of, of deployments and other people's feedback and things like that to make it into the tool we got today. Yeah, and and you know you the optimizer defaults to a certain naming standard, and and I know I can say that um, when I worked at. Um, the com- same company that Tom works at, um, sometimes I would get tasked with going in and doing uh, health checks on you know installations and everything that customers had done themselves. And you'd, you'd look in it to see what the rules look like, and you go, oh, <laughs> these are all, all done by the optimizer tool. Um, yeah. g- give, us, give us an idea of, uh, um, do you run stats? Do you know how many people have used it or... Yeah, I have run stats, uh, so I do keep track as of about, a, originally when I created the Link Optimizer, it was a local tool that was written in VB script, because that that's the only programming language I know, um, and it was done back in OCS 2007 days, and it was, it was specifically meant to deal with a situation in North America where you... Um, 
you don't know when you dial a phone number whether it's going to be local or long distance just by looking at it. And that's a big problem, and especially in Link or Skype for Business, when everything should be normalized to E164 standards, which includes the plus, Skype for Business has to know, especially if you're, if you're calling over a T1 trunk, has to know when to strip the one and when to leave it. So that's what it was originally written for, and all it would do is just spit out regex that you would then incorporate into into Office communication server in a very, very convoluted manner, but it got the job done and also did it for Dialogic and Audio Codes gateways at the same time. Um, and then once Link came out and this PowerShell thing came out, that's then that's kind of got me going to, hey, I could do a lot more with this tool now. So, so that's where... That's where it all started. It was with that, so it's all written for the web now. And I forgot the question. What was no, the, question? the question? Was uh, your stats? Um, how, oh how yeah, my stats. Yeah. So originally, again, so it was written again personally for me. And once I put it out in the web, originally I was it was tracking everything in XML files, and that just became too burdensome. So burdensome. So then I transferred everything to SQL, and that was around. 2013, I think, November of 2013. So since, and it's been running several years before that, it's been up in there since about 2010 days. So since then, since 2013, we've had 6,350 users who have signed up to use the tool. And we have almost 28,000 rule sets that have been generated in, since November 2013 for a total of 152 countries. So I do have 231 countries. Um, I have dialogues for 231 countries, but so far people have only run rules for only, only 152 of those countries. Hmm. Well, that's pretty good. Um, have you heard from, I know you've heard from like big companies and, and stuff that have used it. And, and you know, like I was saying, I've gone in and looked in organizations, and you, you look at the rule set, and they go, "Oh, this was obviously done by the optimizer." Um, yeah. But I mean, there's 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 probably some feathers in your cap too about um, you know some of the largest companies in the world or some some famous companies, big name companies that have used it. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I especially in our current jobs at Event Zero, I do get exposed to a great number of link deployments. And whenever I'm talking with a customer and we're doing a screen share, I'm always just curious just to see, hey, can you go, let's go look at the dial plan for a second. I just want to see something. And then I can see, hey, you use my tool. Woohoo. But yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm constantly amazed at the scale of, of some of the businesses that use it. And again, because it's perfectly developed for exactly this. Like I, some of the changes that I've made were to make my job easier I went back in my consulting days. So like the addition of being able to do stuff via PowerShell. So it's like literally in the design doc, I would say, go here, plug, get the rule set, um, run this PowerShell script, and it's gonna, it'll generate all the rules. You do this in this specific order, and you're all done, like literally. So it's, it's saved me tons of time, and I, I, and I certainly know it does the same thing for... Everywhere. So it works well for companies who have got like one link server up to enterprises that have hundreds. Yeah, you know, I, and I'm I'm the same way. I wrote my uh, um, my prereq script for myself because I can never remember uh, everything that I have to do. So I, I figured I'll write the script to um, you know 
do all the prereq stuff before Skype for Business is installed. And, you know, the next thing you know, other organizations are using it. And then you're here, hey, you know, we're, we're using it in MCS or we're using it at, you know, uh, uh, a Forbes 5 company or whatever. And you go, well, that's kind of cool, you know. It's nice to see. Yeah, uh, yeah it's see nice to hear that. Yeah. yeah. So, great. And I also thrive on feedback. Like, most of the countries that I have dial rolls for, I've never been to. And it's just by looking, I've learned the places to look like I start Wikipedia and then I go into the deep dark web and I like you would not believe the amount of hours I've spent trolling uh, telecommunications websites for countries trying to find their dial plan which is often written in a language other than English and trying to tease things out of there so I'm always looking for feedback from users if you see a dial rule that's wrong for your country or something like that just send me a note and then I can I, I will fix it within minutes yeah, this this podcast has a decent reach. I think we've got a lot of countries covered. So if you've got five minutes and even you know you know what you're doing, you might need uh, Ken's scripts. It's worth having a look and seeing if you can validate them for him. That'd be uh, really helpful. Yeah, it'd be great help. Well, you know, it, go, it goes back to the, the comments a minute ago about um, you know donating money to to cover your expenses. I, you know, I, I I'm kind of that way too. But you know, people that send you helpful information to help you improve the tool is just as valuable, I think. Exactly. Because it um, not only helps me, but it helps everybody else who uses the tool yep. beyond that. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Well, thanks. Um, next up, uh, Richard Brineson, one of the um, Skype for Business MVPs, came across a little issue running VVX phones with shared line appearance and got some weird uh, settings um that kept popping up. So he wrote a, a great article about dealing with Polycom VVX phones and shared line appearance. So if you get a chance, take a look at it, and we'll uh, we'll throw a link out there on the summary page. And and Richard should never be called Richard. Just call him Argyle Boy. <laughs> and that's funny to those of us who are are in the same room as Richard once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Um, okay, here's something that, uh, uh, you know, another thing that's really helpful, I think, um, and has gotten a lot of um, a lot of talk on uh, Twitter, is uh, the Skype for Business Hybrid Deployment Guide. So uh, I'm going to try really hard not to butcher his name, but it's Balu Ilag, hopefully. If it's, if it's not right, I'm sorry. Um, but he wrote this. Uh, it's a PDF file that you can download off the TechNet Gallery about uh, how to set up uh, Skype for Business hybrid um, with both on-premises and, um, and Skype for Business online uh, configuration. So walks you through just about everything you need to know. Um, pretty good document. I took a quick look at it, and, uh, and people are really starting to talk about it being a, a worthwhile uh, read if you're thinking about going the hybrid route. So check that out. Next up, something that I saw that I thought was actually pretty darn cool um, if you've deployed a, um, a link room system or Skype for Business room system, whatever you want to call it, um, you know that the choices of hardware and uh, the configuration of those is s somewhat limited. Um, so this company called Sequens came out with basically a box that looks like a almost like a Mac mini box. Uh, that you can plug your own hardware into, your own TV screens and computers and keyboards and mice and um, cameras and everything. And it basically turns it into a um, Skype for Business 
room system. So you get all the same uh, uh, types of menus as you get with a uh, kind of packet prepackaged uh, link room system. Um, you get the one-touch um, meeting join and uh, schedules and, and the ability to share content and all that stuff, um, all from just this, this little tiny box um, uh, with your own your own hardware, like an HDMI screen and things like that. So uh, check it out. We'll have a link to a YouTube video that kind of shows uh, how the how the box works and what it looks like and stuff. So um, nice to see that uh, somebody's stepping up to uh, to fill kind of a void because I've, I've heard from a lot of people that, you know, they can't spend the kind of big dollars to put in a, a dedicated uh, Skype for Business uh, room system or link room system because the, the hardware is... Uh, you know, there's only so many options, and uh, um, so here's here's a way to kind of get around that. Uh, next up, um, one of our own, um, Justin Morris, came up with uh, a little program that he's starting now called the Modality APAC Perspective. It's a monthly video series. I wish Justin could be here today, but Tom, maybe you could talk about this for a second. Yeah, this is a new thing Justin's doing. Obviously, he's been out running our... Um uh, APAC operations for a little while now, and uh, he's very busy running. He's the country manager and kind of region manager out there. But one of the things he, he's been talking about for a while is um, you know finding more time to do social stuff, and he's come up with this idea of having uh, an APAC perspective show where people can tweet in or uh, YouTube or LinkedIn questions to him, and he'll just grab a camera and spend 15 minutes kind of answering questions and talking about what's going on. So uh, very kind of interactive with a kind of APAC, what's going on relevant to that region slant. And based on what I've seen, um, just getting shouted out around uh, Twitter is uh, J uh, Justin and Modality are kind of taking that area by storm and doing some some really good deployments out there. So um, yeah, we're busy out there. Do you know what? Loads of cloud out there as well. Like loads of people jumping on the um, cloud connector edition, and uh, loads of you know kind of driving towards cloud. It's I think it's a combination of some international companies. One of the one of our Australian guys was saying this. What some international companies they kind of pick. Australia or APAC first because it's like well we'll just give it a go in, in APAC and see what happens and some of it is the companies out there being fairly progressive and getting on top of it so yeah busy region interesting times awesome awesome yeah I took I took uh, a quick uh, watch through Justin's first one and uh, you know obviously Justin's a very intelligent person and he's able to articulate things very well so I think it's well worth uh uh, subscribing to it and, uh, and keeping on top of things out there. Okay, if you've tried to deal with PowerShell in Skype for Business Online, you know that uh, the policy settings and, uh, and things like that, uh, the options are different than what you get from an on-prem perspective. So I can say now that there is now a spreadsheet that shows you all the policy settings available in uh, Skype for Business Online so that you have a good reference point of what's available, what you can do and can't do. Come on, Pat. You're telling me you don't understand a policy called BPOS, X, all modalities, no multi-AV, no FT, no dial-out, min, video, PW. Like, <laughs> what's not to understand? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, you know, and, and I'll, I'll say I don't have a lot of experience with dealing with Skype for Business Online um, from an automation or PowerShell perspective. I just haven't had too many opportunities, but every time I've looked at it, it's like, 
Yeah, these just... Uh, I mean, it, they try to cram an entire paragraph description into one yeah. commandlet name. and Yeah, it's, it's, weird, it's a weird one. There's, you, know, there's, you don't get to choose your own policies in Skyfizzers Online. They've built X amount, looks like about 60 now, something like that, from this spreadsheet, and they try and cover every single variant of every scenario you want. But obviously there's a bunch of variables you can turn on and off. So you want full AV, but you want no file transfer, or you want full AV and you don't want file transfer. Yeah. So, yeah, working through them is pretty complicated. And this, uh, this blog post and this spreadsheet is really, really useful, actually. Yeah, yeah, excellent stuff. So uh, we'll get a link up to that. Um, next, the Skype for Business 2016 client only supports the new V16 of ICE. Is that true? That's what I heard. Let's look it up. Going to talk about that. Yeah, this is. This is I think this has been around for a, a little while, but someone's taken. Uh, is it Alessio? Is taking the time to post it? Um, but it, 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 that's obviously. Great, it only supports V16 ICE. What does that mean? Well, it means you're going to have issues in trading with Exchange uh, 2007 Unified Messaging, which is something that um, just a couple of months ago we came across, actually, in modality on a project. Someone still had Exchange 2007. And if you're not careful, you have voicemail issues because that's using the old uh, ICE V6 stuff, not the uh, new stuff. I kind of thought there were actually issues with Link 2013 and... Exchange 2007 voicemail. Uh, I've, I, don't know, I just remember it fairly recently. Something to do with Exchange 27 and UM being an issue for a while now. Yeah. You shouldn't, shouldn't be on Exchange 2007, I guess, is the bottom line. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there is this issue with Skype for Business Server directly to Exchange 2007. UM doesn't work either. But 2013 does, but Skype for Business doesn't. Maybe that's what the issue uh, is. But I don't think, I don't think 2013, I don't think Exchange UM is officially supported with 2013 either. It's just this stack issue again, I believe. But yeah, good, good posts, good lot of detail there. If you're into your kind of low-level stack stuff, it's worth having a look at um, Lesh's blog on that. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about clicking on links in the Skype for Business cont- um, client. So if you click on a web link, obviously it takes you there, but if you click on a UNC uh, path, um, it can try to send authentication info across that. So what does, it, what does that mean? Do, are we, do we need to be um, cognizant of the fact that uh, this information might be getting sent across? Well, that's uh, the question that Advar Mo. Uh, wrote in a blog post about uh, careful when clicking on links in Skype for Business. So th- the concern here is about sending or trying to authenticate when clicking on links. And Tom, you can explain what's going on here. Yeah, it's, um, if, if you send a, um, a backslash backslash uh, like a 192.168.10.10 type link, um, uh, Skype will try and authenticate by sending the uh, NTLM um, hash, so the Windows authentication. Um, so somebody's worked out that if you put an external link into there in that kind of internal link format, it will still send the NTLM hash. Um, it's, it's only kind of in a 
a fairly niche scenario of allowing um, port 445 and most ISPs won't allow that anyway. But it is a genuine like potential risk that someone can get that and then they can try and brute force that hash in uh, you know kind of various NTLM hash brute force tools. But it's fairly corner case. Obviously, there's always the thing about talk, talking to your users about good practice and not clicking links they don't know and understand, but people click stuff. Things like um, Exchange and, and Outlook um, or Exchange Mail rather is covered if you've got the Office 365 advanced threat protection. It does all the link uh, checking. You can probably get around like that, but Skype doesn't do that today. If you're really, really worried about this, obviously you can flip your Skype policies to making links non, non-clickable and that will get around it for now. But hopefully something Microsoft will look at. So the way, the way that I understand it, based on what you're saying, is if you use a UNC path that has FQDN, so uh, domain.contoso.com slash test, um, that's when Windows will try to authenticate it by sending the NTLM hash. Um, Skype does block UNC path that um, um, contains an IP address. So slash slash, you know, 182, 168, whatever. Um, Skype should, should block that. So the concern is mainly more around uh, FQDNs. So Tom, um, I was reading that uh, Microsoft is now going to bring Skype PSTN conferencing to Australia, which is near and dear to our heart, my my heart and Ken's, since we uh, you know are tied to a company down there. But uh, so, what does this mean? So yeah, Pat, this is good news. Microsoft for some time have provided PSTN conferencing into Skype Business Online. So that's the ability to dial in on a regular phone. They have a concept of buy countries or sell to countries where you can buy it, and they have dial-in countries where you can have a number. And they've always had more countries where you can have a dial-in number than where you can buy the service. The reason that the countries you can buy it from is limited is just to legal regulation and taxes and such. It takes a while to get that stuff pushed through. So for some time, Australia, you've been able to have a dial-in number. But if your Office 365 billing address was in Australia, you couldn't buy the service. And as of September, you'll be able to buy the service. So Australian companies that are headed there will be able to pay Microsoft for dial-in numbers. I think the dial-in number set is uh, 100 or so countries now. So the coverage is really good. And the sell to countries is uh, pushing forward all the time as well. Australia is another big one that Microsoft have now, as of September, will have nailed where they can sell the service. So uh, good progression on Skype Business Online. Then. Okay, well, that sounds pretty interesting, Tom. Um, glad to see that some of the other parts of the world are, are now able to use PSTN and Skype. So look forward to that. Um, that pretty much does it for our Skype uh, Skype topics for this episode. All right, so let's talk uh, Exchange and Outlook. So first up, we've got uh, um, Outlook for iOS and Android is uh, making a change. So a couple years ago, uh, 2014, when Microsoft uh, made a popular acquisition of Accompli, uh, which was an iOS client for for, uh, Exchange, um, one of the ways that Accompli worked was it used uh, Exchange ActiveSync um, to get some data from the mailboxes, but then what it would do is it would use Amazon Web Services to kind of process that uh, and use it as a cache. Well, that caused some 
uh, heartburn with some customers and um, some concern amongst potential customers because data was being stored, um, albeit temporarily, in, uh, in AWS. So Microsoft is now making a change and bringing that cache processing all in, in-house. So, John, um, what, uh, what's up with this? Do you think this is going to be an issue, or do you think anybody's going to even notice this? No, I mean, end users don't notice. I mean, I think probably the, the biggest beef back when, when they announced that, you know, the, the, the underpinnings, well, there was also, there was two beefs. One one time, this, you know, again, when we were used to an existing client, like, say, the native, and I'm, you know, obviously I'm a big iOS fan, so, you know, I, I use the Complays and, and Sunrise, which is another sort of competitor to that that Microsoft bought, um, and, uh, and the native, you know, calendaring and, and email clients. Um, but, you know, we're used to, you don't, you know, yeah, with AccuSync clients, you, you sync, you pull mail down and it stays on the server and, you know, you don't think anything of it. Um, so I think part of it was that, you know, this, this concept that there was, you know, data, your mail was being cached somewhere, even though it really wasn't. It was just like some sort of temporary data, whatever. Um, I think there was a complaint, you know, compliance complaints. Also, one time early on after the acquisition, it went down. So, you know, a complex or somebody's, you know, pieces in the puzzle went down. And so, like, you couldn't, you know, so in your mind, your exchange, you know, your exchange server is broken, right? Because all of a sudden I can't sync and you're like, what's going on? And it turns out that just, just that whole back end process was down. And a lot of people kind of flipped out because we're like, okay, I think, I think that might be one of the reasons why people found out what was going on, right? Um, right. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's a great client and, uh, um, it was a great, great client, and you know they're rolling a lot of that stuff into the into the old client or the the uh, the, the the Outlook client for iOS. So, um, and uh, yeah, like I said, it's been a sticking point for some people to adopt the client. I think uh, because of this, you know, hey, your mail, our mail's sitting on someone's servers, even though it wasn't, right? So, right. Um, it's you know, so. Uh, well, I think uh, I think a- organizations also wanted you know the the <laughs> the analogy that I read that was somewhat humorous is a single throat to choke. So, you know, when there's an issue with, you know, the clients getting data from, you know, the back end, uh, you want a one-stop shop to call and say, hey, we're having problems. You don't want a bunch of finger pointing going, oh, Microsoft says it's AWS and Amazon says it's Microsoft and go back and forth. So having having Microsoft moving all of this processing over to, you know, a, a true Microsoft infrastructure, um, I think kind of alleviates that as well, you know, not not to belittle the security concerns, but, you know, kind of a twofold uh, advantage here. Yeah, yeah, again, you know, like I said, people, you know, for compliance reasons, they want to know that uh, this mail is, you know, and, you, and obviously you see organizations that some, you know, some organizations still don't even allow ActiveSync externally, or, or if you do, you have to go through some MDM solution, which is more and more common, which has all kinds of fun, you know, pitfalls and, and, uh, and, jo- and hoops to jump through, right? So, right. So, uh, but I mean, it's a good move, because obviously, you know, this is sort of a sticking point to adoption of the Outlook client, um, which is a good, you know, a powerful client, and a lot of people, um, even like even consumer basings like The Verge, I think that uh, late last year, like you know, rated it the number one, you know, client for iOS, or mail client for iOS, ahead of you know a lot of the other ones that are you know Gmail specific and and the native client. I mean, I I love it. I use it sort of alongside the you know the, the iOS Outlook client uh, alongside the mail native mail app for one one reason because I've been using the mail app for ten years and sort of I just you, it's just my go to sort of. And then the other thing, sometimes with the Yelda client, I just aesthetically, I don't like it. You can't, there's not as many options and you can't display as many lines. I wish you could get like, you know, some sort of configuration to the interface a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, they, and I'm a a big iOS, uh, mobile device person too. And, um, and I, I like the client. I think Microsoft's done a lot with it since they basically, they basically took the Accompli client and, um, and just, 
renamed it to you know Outlook for iOS. Uh, but since then, they, they've done a lot. They've added some Azure Active Directory authentication. They've uh, multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, uh, DRM. Um, you know, uh, encryption. All kinds of things like that. So they they've really been paying attention to what organizations want, and I think this was was a good move. And I I can't see that anything bad is going to come come out of it. And I think Microsoft will do very hard uh, uh, work very hard to make sure that it's a, a seamless change. Yeah, one thing that the article noticed, which I don't think, you know, I mean, I, I can't. No, I guess it's pretty, pretty relevant. But uh, that, that I think that the way they're the, this this architecture change, you're, it requires Exchange 2010 SB1 or higher to. Uh, um, uh, 2010 uh, SB1. Yeah, okay. yeah. If you look at the supporting Exchange on-prem uh, section, um, I think if you, you know, the EAS 14.1, which is which is the minimum supported, and I think Microsoft only supports. Exchange 2010 SB3 now. So just, you know, if if this if the, the change to the back end um, results in this not working, it might be just because your version might not be up to date or you're you know you're running out. Yeah. If you're still on 2010, uh, it, well, yeah, there's a lot more than you think. Hey, I, <laughs> well, I, I still I, see I 2007. <laughs> you you and I tend to be you know bleeding edge people, so uh, we we look at at orgs that are way out of date and it kind of makes us cringe. But I was telling my buddy I was looking at a 2007 environment and uh, I had to, I was going to do some kind of bulk changes and I was thinking like well back then like what you know PowerShell one and all that. So there's a lot of things I couldn't use that I'm used to using, you know, modern day stuff. So I'm like, what was that utility I used to use? Oh, 80 modified.net. And would you believe it still works like a champ? I'm, and my buddy was laughing. But you still use that? I'm like, it still works, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great tool, and it's still great. <laughs> cool. So um, next up, um, an announcement, not really a, a, any products or anything, but um, Litmus, which is actually uh, – um, an email marketing provider is now going to partner up with Microsoft to help bring some of Litmus's kind of cool features and functionality to the Outlook client. So um, I, I honestly had never heard of Litmus uh, before uh, this no, I can't came either. to me. Uh, but I, I did some looking around. They're pretty darn popular. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of people that had used Litmus – um, and then had switched to Outlook, had you know gone back to Litmus and said, hey, you know you should team up with Microsoft and bring you know some of that over to Outlook. And so now it looks like that's going to happen. So um, be interesting to see what they come up with. Um, well, yeah, it looks interesting. Um, you know, it's you know it's, you, you, I take for granted because I don't use a lot of these you know third party sort of plugins for Outlook, but uh, there's an entire ecosystem of that stuff out there, and it's. Uh, uh, you know, people live by this stuff too. I mean, I, you know, if you took away one note from me, I would literally die. But um, and uh, that uh, what's that uh, find time or I think it was called for for uh, uh, yeah find time added for calendar uh, uh, you know like trying to find a, a group calendar kind of thing uh, time wise for Outlook that was added not that long ago is, is pretty yep. slick. I'm actually playing around with that. It's just yep. five only right now, but it's pretty cool. And you had mentioned uh, earlier about um, sunshine. Or sunrise. sunrise. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and there had been some announcement or mumbling that that was going to be um, right. Uh, killed this, with. At the end of the month, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're now well, literally like what two days ago. <laughs> yeah, they're now kind of backpedaling a little bit uh, about that. So we'll have to see what uh, what comes up with that. Is it? Yeah, and ironically, on, on the on the uh, on the on my phone on iOS, I I actually use that even more than I did 
you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I use that primarily as my main uh, calendaring app, even outside of the iOS calendar and Outlook, you know, for iOS. So, but as soon as I heard the announcement, I'm like, well, I better sort of like start weaning myself off of it. You know, <laughs> I'm like, now do I, do I reinstall it and start using it again? <laughs> or should I just get used to, you know, assuming it's gone, right? Right. Right. Now, if you want to dig deeper into the weeds, uh, we've got an article for you to read. So uh, a while back, uh, two big shots in the exchange world, um, MVP and MCM, Andrew Higginbotham, and uh, and Paul Cunningham, everybody knows who Paul Cunningham is, um, teamed up and wrote a book called Exchange Server Troubleshooting Companion. And it's uh, it's been pretty popular. It's a great book. Uh, those guys know their stuff inside and out. Um, well, uh, they've posted uh, an excerpt uh, from the book about a practical look at Exchange database internals uh, on the Enow website, and um, this is a great article. It talks about, you know, how things connect to the Exchange database cache, uh, how transaction logs come into play, and um, how they're processed and how they come, uh, they're utilized for um, uh, restores, um, the naming conventions, uh, I/O, all that stuff. So if you really want to dump and in, uh, jump into the weeds. Uh, about uh, how the database works. Um, take a look at this. So, John, yeah, you you're, know, you're an exchange guy just like me, so, you know, this uh, is all well, and this, interesting stuff. Yeah, and it, this is, because when I was reading this, I started laughing, because, again, like, this was sort of like, I mean, when you, you know, I, I've been through multiple, um, you know, back with the, the old master program, right, for exchange, and actually uh, many sessions with Andrew, uh, ironically. Um, so, you know, these are this is the kind of nuts and bolts of the of the exchange and the EDB databases that you you get drilled into your head. And I actually have gotten I was actually in an interview with MCS one time years ago, and he started going down this road, and I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> and, and again, and, 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 and reading Andrew's article, there's a ton of stuff that I totally have forgotten about, like how the mechanics work. And it gets really down, you know, in the nuts and bolts, but it is kind of fascinating and makes you understand really, like. You know, this concept, like, people think, like, you know, there's a shame database and you actually connect to the database or mail. That's really not the case. You connect to the cache, right? And so it's, uh, you know, people take, you know, even I think a lot of exchange administrators maybe don't really fully understand how it all works. And, you know, we don't see as much corruption and stuff like we did back in the old days, like 5.5. So a lot of this stuff isn't as, you know, it's sort of like, you know, transparent now because, you know, exchange doesn't just... You know, databases just don't go belly up like they used to. You know, remember, right. remember, like you know, five five days. If you lost power in a chain server, you know, be pretty pretty sure that that database is not coming back up and mounting. It's pretty much a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, God, I remember. Well, I was working for a large insurance company in Chicago, and they actually was it was like one of those. If you remember historically, it was like summer of like like late nineties, ninety eight, I think. And we had some bad like heat waves, and power was going down around the city. And uh, we, this this company had like a you know almost a whole size block in the, in Chicago and and uh, and two big towers right and the data center was in one and most of the offices were in the other but it turns out like the grid went right through the two buildings so like literally the city knew that they were going to shut down one grid to kind of balance things out and they uh, somehow somebody got a call at the at the company and said hey they're going to go and shut down you know the basically data center is going to go offline go shut down all the exchange servers so we literally run down the elevator run across the lobby run to the other elevator and start shutting the servers down and then they call and say yeah never mind we're not going to do it but we're already in the middle of shutting down all these mail servers at like two in the afternoon so yeah this is a, this kind of you know fear and panic it used to be when when you're thinking about like your exchange server just going straight offline but yeah it's really good stuff um i definitely check it out and i think it's a multi-part thing i was going to go into some other stuff yeah um in subsequent uh, uh, uh episodes so yeah, you know, it's it it's interesting because you, you you mentioned your story, <clears throat> your story, <clears throat> 
Excuse me. And um, years ago, um, when I was doing exchange consulting, uh, we got a call from a customer, a, a big name customer that's headquartered um, not far from me, somebody that everybody's heard of before. And um, their their exchange five five cluster went offline. And um, and so I get there and <laughs> literally um, every possible problem that you can think of was in play here. Um, the first was that the storage, the shared storage had um, run out of space. And then we had all these databases and dirty shutdown and uh, all these other problems. And I remember it took us 26 hours straight yeah, nice. to get all these problems squared away. And a lot of these were, you know, just knowing some of the stuff about how the database databases worked and how transaction logs come into play and you know dumping into the weeds to to change where exchange looks for database files while the cluster's offline and and all this other stuff but you know i i was reading through this this article by um by andrew here and um it was it was kind of bringing back these nightmares of that incident because i i, I literally got there uh during the day and um Though, you know, everybody in the building came, went home and slept and came back, and they're like, "Oh, you're in early." No, we're still here, and uh, yeah, 26 hours. That was that was quite the. Uh, yeah, well, again, same same. Okay, and I'm not proud of this, so everyone, you know, if you don't want to hear me tell the tell some kind of truth that you don't want to do, you don't want to be embarrassed for me. Turn this off now. All right. So when I read the check file, I was thinking about it years and years ago, and it's, I think it was the Exchange 2000 time frame. Um, I was on my, I, I was literally on my, like, it was like, you know, like 4.55, I was going on vacation for a week, like, you know, the next day, and literally some database dismounted, and, you know, it was like high-profile thing, blah, 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 have to get it online, have to get it online, so, you know, there's something, blah, 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 so I'm like, well, if I just burn the check file, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mount the database, I, might, I didn't tell anybody you might lose <laughs> some mail, but, <laughs> so, I did that, right, mail, but, you know, database comes online, everyone's happy, yay, go on vacation, and then I come back, like, Hey, you know, people were complaining they lost a little bit of mail. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you didn't ask for the no no mail loss version of me deleting the check file, did you? <laughs> so again, not proud of it, but you know, <laughs> that option's off the table when vacation is looming. <laughs> the statute of limitations is off on that now, and I think I got insurance for that now. Anyway, uh, good. So, anyways, uh, awesome stuff from from Andrew, as always. Yeah, and, appreciate. Uh, it. We'll get links to all these exchange related topics in the summary episode. All right, and that's it for Exchange Topic. A couple of events we wanted to talk about real quick. First is Ignite. Uh, a whole bunch of us will be there, so we hope to see you in Atlanta towards the end of September. Um, the session builder is now available, so you can go ahead and look at all the various uh, Skype for Business sessions that are available. Um, if you, p- I can tell you firsthand, if you pick every Skype for Business session, you'll be triple and quadruple booked for every time slot the entire week. So something like 83 uh, sessions uh, for um, just for Skype for Business. So plenty of content to, uh, to check out. Uh, and the next is uh, UC Day. So the UC Day mailing list uh, for more information about a dedicated UC and cloud conference happening on October 24th in the heart of the UK. So check that out. That's ucday.co.uk. And that pretty much does it for events and for this episode. So I wanted to thank uh, Tom and here and our special guest, Ken. So check out Ken's uh, uh, dialing rule optimizer at skypeoptimizer.com. And uh, Ken, thanks for stopping by. Finally, we'll have to have you on again. 
Um, also, uh, thanks to Andrew, our poor editor, who's going to have to put up with uh, a bunch of technical issues in, in this recording, but no doubt we'll uh, export some a quality audio file. So, uh, Andrew, thanks for that. And finally, before we go, as ever, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website today at theucarchitects.com. Follow us on Twitter at the UC Architects. Be a friend and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash theucarchitects. And on LinkedIn, uh, we've got a group, so uh, pop in there, ask questions. We're happy to get uh, try to answer feedback on our episodes. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you'll find it in the iTunes store, the Zoom marketplace, uh, uh, search for us in the uh, our Windows Phone 8.1 podcast app, or subscribe to the podcast using the RSS feed in your favorite podcast downloader, even Outlook. Uh, see our website for links to everything on the show today. We'll see you back in a couple of weeks for the next episode.